I'm Anna Lee Ashford. Hi, this is Queen Leslie. I'm Robin De Jesus. Queen Leslie Margarita. Hi, I'm Eden Espinosa. I'm Anthony Rapp. Hi, I'm Laura Osnes. I'm Katie Finnerin. Hi, I'm Tanya Pinkins. I'm Karen Olivo, and you are listening to the Theater People Podcast. Hello, fellow theater people. Welcome to episode 22 of the Theater People Podcast. I'm Patrick Hines, your host. We waited and waited and waited to ask today's guest, Celia Keenan-Bolger, to be on our show. All of us at the podcast are crazy about her, but we didn't quite know how to get in touch with her, and honestly, I couldn't handle the idea of her saying no. That does happen sometimes. After months of hemming and hawing, I bit the bullet and sent her a message. Her three-word reply came less than an hour later. I'd love to. I died. Like so many people, I discovered Celia when she made her Broadway debut in the 25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee back in 2005. She was at once hilarious and heartbreaking. There's one moment of her performance that has stuck with me ever since. You'll hear us talk about that towards the end of the interview. Her recent performances as Molly and Peter in The Starcatcher and Laura in The Glass Menagerie have solidified her place at the top of the pack of her generation of actors. And now she's back on stage in Sarah Rule's The Oldest Boy, currently running at the Mitzi Newhouse Theater at Lincoln Center. I was so honored to have the chance to talk to her about it, as well as other highlights from her amazing career. Here's our conversation. I've been telling my friends all week that I'm going to be so starstruck, and I'm totally starstruck. No way. It's so amazing to meet you. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for doing our podcast. My pleasure. I love you. Okay. Um, should we just start? Yeah, sure. Okay. So you're going to be doing The Oldest Boy at Lincoln Center. Yes. Um, can you tell us about it? Yeah, I can. We um we actually did a workshop of it for three weeks uh, in June, and then I start rehearsals next Thursday, I guess, whenever this comes out. That next Thursday <laughs> could be any day. Um, but it's basically uh, a beautiful new play by Sarah Rule about a woman who is played by me. Um, Listeners, me. we had... <laughs> We're dealing with an air conditioner compression thing. It's one of those hot days here in <laughs> yeah, New York City. So if you could just bear with us, that should stop. Um, uh, so there's a woman, uh, and she's married. Uh, we live in the United States, and uh, she's married to a man from Nepal, and they have a toddler who's three years old. Um, and her husband is Buddhist, and I think she... I know that she is very interested in Buddhism as well. Their son is named Tenzin, which also happens to be the name of the Dalai Lama. Oh, wow. Um, and uh, and she is home one day, and two monks come to her house and say that they th- believe that her child is the reincarnation of a high lama, which a lama, not to be confused with the animal, um, meaning <laughs> right. teacher, in Buddhism, and uh, they want to take him back to India to um, educate him. And so, she, first of all, she has to decide whether or not she thinks this is even a legitimate claim, and then has to sort of come to terms with the fact is she going to let her child be taken away and, and educated 
as a, as a Buddhist. And, um, and she'll get to see him. It's not like he's being taken away forever. But I think it's a really, really interesting and emotional and um, investigative uh, story about culture and relationships. And I, I'm really excited to start well, it. I was going to ask you, so it's Sarah Rule is the writer and Rebecca Teichman, am I saying it right? Teichman, yes. Teichman, mm-hmm. who are two of like the hottest like writer-directors uh, like on the scene right now. They are powerful ladies. Yeah, and they work together a lot. They do. Um, what did you know of their work before committing to this? And what do you hope will come out of working with the two of them? Um, that's a good question. Um, <laughs> I, I had been, I've been a fan of Sarah Rules forever. I auditioned for the Vibrator play a long time mm-hmm. ago, and I auditioned for that, um, was it The Cherry Orchard? Or no, it was um, Three Sisters that John mm-hmm. Doyle directed in Cincinnati. And I just, I, I have long admired much of her work. And, and any interviews that I've read about her, I've also just thought she sounded like a pretty rad woman. And then Rebecca Tashman and I worked together last summer at Sundance at their theater lab, actually working on a new Paula Vogel play, which was fascinating because um, Paula was the teacher, was the drama um, writing teacher at Brown University for years. And Sarah Rule was one of her students. So um, there's that whole connection. And just working with Rebecca, I felt like she was such a highly intelligent and um, visual sort of genius. And the two of them getting to be in a room, you know, I, they just asked me to do a workshop of it a while ago, um, and, and being in the room with the two of them. I don't know that I've ever actually had an experience where both the writer and the director were women. And I think it's fascinating. I was going to – I didn't know if that was a trite question. But I, is that – I mean, that is I think amazing. It's legitimate. And I think the fa- fact that I've been doing this for, like, over 14 years and that that's never been the case is also significant. <laughs> um, and I just think per- – I mean, Sarah is from the Midwest, which is also where I'm from, and um, – and I think has that – I just really, really like being in a room with her because she is so emotionally um, evolved and understanding but also, like, crazy intelligent. And I just think her – the way that she handles herself in a room as a woman in particular is, like, really inspiring and I'm, I think probably actually brings out – things that are problematic for them, but being around her actually makes me feel like, no, actually say what you think or don't apologize for this, but, you know, you can do it in a generous way. And it was actually when I worked with Paula, I felt the same thing, which was that she had this enormous self-confidence, which I think is just in general hard to come by in this business. I don't mean ego. I mean actually Mm -hmm. confidence. But also, like, like no ego, in fact, that she was so willing to collaborate and to listen and to change things. Um, But all of it sort of was rooted in this sense that she really knew what she was doing. And I think just being around that energy is so empowering and inspiring. And I think it brings out good things in everybody that 
it gets to be around it. And you guys are doing the play in the Mitzi Newhouse, right? We are. Such a great theater. I know there are so many shows I really loved that were yeah, in that theater. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was the one last season with um, Laurie Metcalf and Jeff Goldblum? It was Domesticated. Did yes, you get a chance I to see that? I did not get to see that. That was like exact same time as Glass Menagerie. That oh, was yeah. one of those ones that Zach Quinto and I were like, we will find a time. And we we're like, no, we won't. <laughs> they have the exact same schedule as us. I wanted to ask, where are you? Have you guys started rehearsals yet for... Not yet. Next week. Next week. So, okay. Yeah. Well, then it's a good time for me to ask this question. What does Celia Keenan-Bolger bring on the first day? Where are you on day one? It's interesting. Like, I would say f- it depends on the project. I think for the most part, Celia Keenan-Bolger just shows up. <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually for this one, because we did a workshop before, I haven't read the play since we did that initial workshop um, in June. I haven't read it again, but I did go on a Buddhist retreat. Oh, wow. Um, like two weeks ago, which it was one of those things where I showed up. It was in upstate New York. It was in this gorgeous like piece of land with a Buddhist temple. And, um, and whenever anybody was like, oh, you know, where are you from and what are you doing here? I was like in my heart a tiny bit embarrassed that I was at a Buddhist retreat. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'm an, I'm an actress and I'm actually doing some research and – and then, like, after about, you know, four hours, I was like, I am not here for research. I'm a I'm Buddhist. Like, I'm having some really <laughs> amazing, life-changing experiences. So it was a three-day retreat. And I do think – I did do it just as research, but it ended up being, I think, so much more uh, fulfilling and informative for me as a human and as an actor, actually. But um, this that this is the rare – and I've also done a – fair amount of reading. Just I think probably that has to do with Sarah and Rebecca who are highly literary and um, and are to me intimidatingly intelligent. <laughs> um, and so actually when during that three-week workshop we had to do like research presentations that we presented to the group. Um, one of mine was on deconstructionism which I had to look up in the dictionary just to <laughs> remind myself like exactly what they were talking about and intercultural marriage. So already it just has sort of bred a different process in me um, than I think I would usually have uh, for other projects. God, I am so excited. I want to give the dates. When do previews start? I believe that the first preview is October 9th and that the show opens on November 3rd. Um, can we go backwards a little bit? Please. Can we talk about the Glass Menagerie? Always. Oh my God. What a perfect piece of theater. It's funny. I felt that way when I was inside of it and when we were making it. And then it's it was one of those experiences, even when we were in Boston, I remember saying to my husband, you know, I don't know what people are going to think about this, but we really made the version of the Glass Menagerie that we wanted to. And so that actually counts for something. Yeah. And then it turned out that people were like, this is good. Well, that, this is a question I had for later, but it, it, it builds on what you were just saying. Do you read reviews? I do. Okay, thank God bless you. Nobody, everybody says they don't. I but think I'm most saying, people do. Well, I remember reading about... They yeah, just say they I don't. Know. I used to be that guy. <laughs> I don't read them. No. Sometimes I will read them post if I feel like... Like, I didn't read them while I was in Boston, but uh-huh. I read them after Boston because I felt like, you know what? They might have some things to say that are useful to me the next time I do this. But the Brantley review of the of it in Boston was so amazing that we literally got on the – we're like, when can we buy tickets for the Broadway run? When, <laughs> when, like, did you guys know after that review came out that it was going to have a life in New York? I mean, I think we assumed, but it took a long time. Like, by the time – 
time we left Boston, there were no dates announced. There was no theater. And I think in that sort of, it, it's, a, it's a great thing to be in this business for a long time. But I also think with that comes certain expectations. And in my heart, I was like, it has Zach Quinto and Cherry Jones. We just got an amazing review from the New York and Times. And Celia Keenan-Bolger, by the way. <laughs> just, to, just in um, case anybody's not paying attention. But I assumed it would, we would find out like the day after that review. And in fact, it took a really long time. And there was a moment when I thought, this actually might be one of those things. And in a great way, I think John Tiffany... The director. Yes. He, when we were there, he was like, all we are here to do is make the best version of this play that we can. And so that really was throughout the process, throughout performing it, that was sort of what we were all in pursuit of. But of course you can't, I'm not, I'm not a dum-dum. I was like, <laughs> this should move to New York. Yeah, exactly. Um, I was ready to produce it. I was going to get out and raise the money myself. Right. I read about the process of like the bonding that you guys had when you were in Boston. Like you guys all seemed like a really tight cast. Yes. Can you, will you share some of those memories? Oh my gosh. It was just, I think something about being in the dead of winter in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We had to cancel like our second, third, and fourth uh, preview because this blizzard came that was so insane that the roads were closed. I mean, it was snow like I had never seen as a grown-up. I'm and, from Boston. Oh. I I love you, Boston, but your weather is the pits. It was, I'm from Michigan, and I was like, yeah. I'm built for this, and this <laughs> is crazy. Um, I just think there is an amazing thing about going out of town, and it really – especially in the winter. It's not like anybody was like, I'm going to go for a run or I'm going right. to go like check out the boats or something. And we were all like, it's freezing. We're going to finish rehearsal. We're going to go home. We're going to do a little bit of work. And then we're all going to meet for dinner and have drinks and hang out. And in a way that just does not happen in New York City, because in New York, you want to go home to your life. Mm-hmm. And so we just, I feel like particularly in Boston, we really spent a lot of time outside of the rehearsal room talking about the play and talking about in a way that quite honestly I'm not always that interested in but it was so it felt so meaningful and so interesting to explore particularly because so much of that play is based on Tennessee Williams and just to sort of talk about him and so you know we got to know each other really 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 well and have you all stayed friends? We have. I mean, Cherry Jones, man, oh, God. she can party <gasps> like no one. I mean, are you I, see, does oh. she drink? Yes. Oh, Cherry Jones, I love you. When I was when we were there, she was like, "This is now. This is what you need to order. You need to order one <laughs> beer and one whiskey, and then that's what you nurse for the whole night." And I was like, "I don't never." tasted brown liquor before but I was like if Sherry Jones is doing it and sure enough for the winter that was my and it was it like kept you warm it was great but she will have us over still we've had a couple of nights um since the ending of that show more than a couple where you leave at like 5 30 in the morning I mean she's that kind of host she wrote me a letter once I asked her I was working on a book and it was like a gay history book and I asked her if she would write the foreword and she just didn't feel comfortable writing it but she wrote me this letter that I have framed on my desk that sounds about right that I just look at whenever I'm having a bad moment she is a truly I learned I feel like even it's so amazing having gone through an experience like that and I have like even in that workshop of the oldest boy that I just did I kept saying, like, what would John Tiffany ask me? Or, like, what would – how would Cherry deal with this? That Like, that's an, a really amazing thing about working with great artists is that they actually – they stay with you. And you feel – I feel 
like I've had so many people to sort of draw from and to learn from and then and then you're like a little more equipped the next time you go into a project. I was going to ask you about if you wouldn't mind like taking us into the rehearsal room for like the table read. Like how what was that like with the with all of you great artists? I mean how how, how was that? What did it look like? I mean, I think initially I'll I can speak for myself. I was I was pretty intimidated. I felt like I wasn't totally equipped, maybe, to be doing the glass menagerie, um, that my training hadn't necessarily <laughs> prepared me for all of that. But I think John Tiffany, the director, just did such an amazing thing, which, first of all, when we started rehearsal, like that first table read, he said, he was like, there are three editions of the glass menagerie there's the reader version there's the acting version and there's the london version and they are surprisingly different really and so we're gonna go through page by page and we have permission from the williams estate to take whatever line you want to say we'll like read the page and then you can choose which edition you want to do so we did what we made was like the cambridge edition (laughs) wow but i actually think that for me changed my relationship to the whole play because I felt like I wasn't trying to insert myself into this piece that, you know, so many people adore. And in fact, I was like, I have a hand in... And, you know, sometimes we would get to that place and I was like, I think I was wrong about the one I chose. <laughs> Could you about change the, it? Yes. I mean, they act, there was, nothing was set in stone until we actually started performing it. I mean, we couldn't, like, write our own lines or come right, up with No, that, no, no. My face that I'm making is, like, I'm so grateful for you to share that story with us because that's that is, um, that is absolutely incredible. What an incredible story. And I think that also, a lot of people said to me after the show, they were like, it was like I saw it for the first time. And I do think a part of that was our relationship to the material, which I think goes back to those first days when we were trying to figure out what edition we were going to use for what. And it just really, it, it immediately sort of put all of us on a level playing field that I think otherwise I would not have felt on. Uh, um, I have like 800,000 questions. Um, I read about your audition. You said that you went into the audition room and you asked John Tiffany if he had anything in particular in mind that he was going for. Yes. I'm so curious to know how you knew you could do that. And what his answer was and uh, how that informed your audition and ultimately your performance. I mean, I think that was, I, I just, again, it genuinely came from feeling intimidated where I felt like I needed someone to say, like, I'm thinking of doing it like this or I'm, that, that some sort of parameter would actually give me more of a sense of what to do. And he said, he was like, just to make it good. <laughs> and, I, and in a way, I guess at the time, it did sort of give me a freedom where I was like, well, then I can only do what I think will make it good. And I remember after the first scene, he gave me one adjustment. And I don't even think I went back and did it again. Um, but like after the entire thing, after the first audition was done, he said two things, which were so smart and so helpful that when I had the call back, I just remember thinking like, just do what you did. And those things that he said, like, see if you can't incorporate those or, you know, and then. What were they? Will you share them oh, with like us? I, of course. Now I'm like, I don't even really remember. <laughs> it had something to do with her strength or with her not 
being too defeatist um, from the get-go, which I think he just sort of took... I mean, I also had never seen The Glass Menagerie, which I think was maybe... I mean, it's horrifying. I'm no. a grown-ass woman. <laughs> I had read it a couple of times, but... Um, You've worked a lot. You've been busy. <laughs> right. But I do think, in a way, I didn't have all of the sort of preconceived notions about who she was because I hadn't seen it before, which mm-hmm. I think ultimately was helpful for me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I can't remember the other thing that he said, if I really thought I could come. <laughs> well, can you, will you share just a little bit with us about what your, your, your take on Laura was? I guess I felt like I could just follow I, the text. I mean, that sounds... No. <laughs> I just fell asleep while I said that. Um, but I think there were a lot of clues for me that were like initial just clues from even when I did the audition that had to do with sort of how people talked about her and then what she actually said. And I felt like those two things were pretty different and that in my heart from the beginning, I was like, there's something big inside of her and that she has a obviously a very difficult time sort of existing in the world and but that that doesn't mean that she's just this sort of pathetic, you know, girl with a limp. <laughs> uh, and that, in fact, the limp, I, I, I also felt like was the least of her problems. That, in fact, this sort of shyness and um, insecurity and all of these other sort of internal conflicts were, were much more debilitating than this physical uh, Thing that she has to deal mm-hmm, with. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but also what happens if you're a kid and you have a limp? I mean, it's not yeah. great. It's never going to be great for you. <laughs> um, and how that sort of influenced what made up her sort of emotional um, life. So I guess I just, and then I had a, the help of like these amazing actors and John to sort of say, I think it's good when we keep going in this direction. I think probably we don't need to do as much. I also think, strangely, coming off of Peter and the Starcatcher, I didn't Mm -hmm. even have a break in between those two shows. So I think my sort of comedic, funny bone was more (laughs) intact than it had been. Mm -hmm. And that there was a part of that that I didn't mean to do it. But that I think I w- did find a sense of humor in some things that were just sort of residual from having done this kind of kooky comedy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, Which I can't wait to talk about. <laughs> I just have one more question about mm-hmm. Glass Menagerie. I wanted to talk about your entrance. Uh-huh. So I read the Times review again, of course, and he didn't want to, Brantley didn't want to give it away, but I, the show is closed, so I feel like we can talk about it yeah. now. Will you describe it? Um, essentially, uh, Tom starts the play. He walks into the living room, and when he sits down on the couch, he says, the play is memory. And at that point, he reaches his hand uh, sort of through the back of the couch and pulls me out of the couch. So you literally come through the back of the couch. Yes. In the most magical thing I've seen on stage. (laughs) Which is, like, so amazing. Because when John Tiffany was like, and then I think, you know, you'll emerge from the furniture. And I was like... 
I'm sorry, That's what? a metaphor. What are you talking about? And I was like, like David Copperfield? And he was like, no, just through like some stage magic. And I was like, mm-hmm. You'll just tell me how that's going to happen. <laughs> and it was the most basic. I mean, there was no magic to it at all. In fact, really? there was a couch that didn't have a, there was like a section that was cut out that I came through. Because it, it looked like you came through the couch. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that it's an amazing, I think that moment in the play, people talk about it so much because I actually think in the most genius John Tiffany way, it taught the audience how to watch the play. Yes, yes, yes. I totally agree with you. It it actually said, this is a memory, and we're not doing this, like, realistically. Mm -hmm. We are going to give you an expressionistic version of someone's memory of what happened, which I think is what Tennessee Williams wanted. Yeah. And I think... That's not how the play is usually performed. Yeah. I mean, the other thing, of course, is the um, the water around the set. Mm-hmm. So to, if, if you guys didn't see it, it was almost like the main playing space was like, it looked like it was floating, you know? Yes. And I was in like the third row and I could not figure it out. I legitimately thought you guys had built the set that you were playing in and then a mirror image of it underneath it. I mean, it <laughs> looked so deep. It looked like the orchestra pit went down 100 feet. And I don't know what I don't know how you did it. I don't know how they did it. I'm not I, saying that you I built know. it, but well, <laughs> Bob Crowley, the genius. Oh that my is god, Bob Crowley. it was so genius. I think John Tiffany saw an art installation in London that had this sort of black glycerin in it, and he said he was like, it was the blackest sort of to look into it. It was more black than any sort of paint or texture that I had ever seen. And he was like, and I just like that idea of them being suspended in the universe, sort of lost with nothing around them and this sort of black universe around them. And I just think, again, that helped the audience. From the minute you walked in, you were sort of like, okay, this yeah. does not look like the Wingfield apartment no. that I'm used to, <laughs> which I think is also really helpful. Uh, I mean, and of course you were nominated for a Tony for that performance. Yes. Congratulations. Thanks. I was pretty excited about that. Oh my God, that that was amazing. Um, Can we talk about Peter and the Starcatcher? Always. Can you, would you mind giving just like a little overview for people who didn't see it? Yeah, of course. It was essentially a story about how Peter Pan became Peter Pan. Um, It's based on a young adult novel. Um, That is a great story. Um, And uh, it just tracks the story of this young lost boy Uh, as he becomes Peter Pan. And there, a lot of it takes place, the first act takes place on a ship where a young aristocrat who uh, is a girl whose father is um, a lord uh, has brought her along. And um, she and this boy meet and sort of fall in teenage love. And then there's a big shipwreck and then they end up on an island. And uh, and it's just sort of about both of them and everyone... uh, growing up or not growing up and there's a really funny pirate in it. <laughs> are we speaking of Christian Borrell? Yeah, we are. <laughs> um, that experience was like, I think to this day, one of the, certainly the most fun I have ever had in a show. Well, I wanted to ask because you were with it for three years, right? You were yeah. in La Jolla. Not and then, consecutively, but yes. Yeah, and then off-Broadway and then to Broadway. Mm-hmm. How did you see the show change in the different incarnations? I think there was a huge change between um, La Jolla and off-Broadway. They they cut down the cast by four members um, just to sort of give everybody a little bit more responsibility. I think they were 
dedicated to it being an ensemble piece where everybody had both physical and um, sort of narrating responsibilities. Uh, and and also there was a woman in that version. The, the character of the nanny was played mm-hmm. by a woman and they decided when it came to New York that they thought it was more... I don't know, powerful if the only girl was played uh-huh. by this like 13 year old sort of plucky know it all. Um, that got to be me. <laughs> um, we also added Stephen Hoggett off, uh, off Broadway, which I think was a huge game changer. And he's like a choreographer, movement director. And yeah. he also did um, Glass, Glass Menagerie, mm-hmm. which was um, like I would go anywhere in the entire universe to work with him. I Can think you tell me about him? Because I tried to get more information. I specifically am interested about what like a movement director does in a play like Peter and the Starcatcher or Glass Menagerie. Yeah. I think they are, what's so amazing about him is that they, they uh, vary drastically depending on the piece. Like for Glass Menagerie, he picked 10 places in the script that he felt like there could be some sort of extended movement or that something that wasn't being said out loud could be expressed physically. So it's not so much dance, but it's a different vocabulary for emotion. So that was his sort of main responsibility in Glass Menagerie. And then in Peter and the Starcatcher, it was a lot of training and getting our bodies. I mean, we did like a half an hour intense warm up every day of like lifting and push-ups and, um, and running and becoming super aware of our bodies in space because that piece had no set. And so we were responsible with like some ropes Mm -hmm. and some sticks and our bodies to create the space. And so his feeling was that we needed to work like a machine, that we needed to all be super in touch with, with each other in the space. And so we did all of this training and then he would just come up with I mean, there were obviously, like, numbers in that show, which he choreographed, but that's, it's, like, almost not that, he does so much more yeah. than that. And, um, and you know, like, if you look at Rocky, he choreographed the fight, and Rocky, he did mm-hmm. all of that movement in once. I mean, I think he's just, I imagine it's what people felt like, or it's my experience of watching his work before I saw Blackwatch a long time ago, and he choreographed that. And it makes me think of what people must have felt like when musicals were first created, where they were like, oh, my God, people are singing mm-hmm. about their feelings. Whereas now we sort of take that as a that's a given. And I think what he does with movement is makes you feel things. And sometimes you don't even know why you're moved or why you're experiencing what they are, because they're not literal. They're a gesture that that we, you come up with with him that express something deeper. And so I think that's really, he had his own company called Frantic. So that's sort of where, but he's like not a trained choreographer. He's just a genius <laughs> who I think has observed human behavior in a way that most people have not. I wanted to ask you about being with a project for three years. Like you said, not consecutively, but like you come to the end of it of Peter and the Starcatcher specifically, how, what did you, how are you different at the end of three years working on a project? I feel like I, well, certainly my body was very strong. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That show was so rigorous that uh, I did feel like strong of mind and body. Um, I also think I learned a lot about boys. Oh yeah? Like what? Like, um, I think there were, there were men in that cast who, if I had worked with them in a different 
group where there it was like a sort of co-ed cast would have been a lot better off and that, <laughs> um, that sometimes and that there were some men that like really thrived with it sort of being an all-male cast and just the way that I think men I think women are so much more interested in um we like find our ladies our like uh-huh. groups and that's how we sort of exist and that men at least in my limited experience <laughs> are sort of more of a like more like their the status is just like to each his own but there is a real status in the room always mm-hmm. at play um and that group i mean that group of guys was the most sensitive hilarious group of men that I've and I mean what was so amazing about doing it for three years is that by the time we opened on Broadway I felt like I had like I was oh I was doing a Broadway show with like three of my best friends and and other people that also I cared a lot about but like we became so close again because we were out of town Mm -hmm. just hanging out and playing games and watching Top Chef (laughs) and uh that when we opened I felt this thing where I was like I get to be in a Broadway show with these people that I like really really love and that was that was a very special experience that show stands out to me so much because i wasn't i didn't get to see it at new york theater workshop i only sat on broadway Mm -hmm. and i love a show that makes you lean forward in your chair and pay attention you know what i mean not because it's hard to follow not even because just for whatever reason you're so engaged that you want to be as close to it as possible yeah and i think there were on a lot of levels there was a lot happening in that show sure. which made you i mean i one of my favorite parts of doing that was the young people that came and i feel like young people these days are so like they know there's not a lot to surprise them because there are amazing movies there's mm-hmm. imax there's video games there's all of this stimuli but talking to kids and even like young adults afterwards, they were like, I'd never seen anything like yeah. that. And I was like, that's saying something for the theater. Yeah. That like actually is significant. Yeah. If anybody, if you have the chance to see Peter and the Starcatcher, go see it. It's so magical. It is. Um, I wanted to talk to you a bit about your off-Broadway work. Aww. Because you're one of those people that's had such success on Broadway and off-Broadway. And I have a little list. So the two big ones I didn't get to see, well, I, I don't know what I mean by big ones because they're all kind of big. But Saved and Bachelorette. Yes. Saved is like me and Mike. It's like one of our absolute favorite movies. But oh, we didn't get movie. to see the show. I know. But then, of course, you did Spelling Bee Off-Broadway, Peter and the Starcatcher, and now Oldest Boy. And I'm just like curious about what the difference is between working off-Broadway versus on-Broadway. And as a performer, how like which is better for your soul? <laughs> I think it depends. You know, I... I did feel like after The Glass Menagerie, I really wanted to do a new play. And I think it's so hard to get a new play produced mm-hmm. on Broadway, especially, and to be in it if you're not a famous person. Mm-hmm. Um, so because of that, I was sort I, I I assumed that my next job would probably be off-Broadway because Broadway off-Broadway is so amazing about cultivating new writers. Um, but I think... Honestly, one of the biggest differences is how much time you have to rehearse, Mm -hmm. which in my experience off-Broadway, it won't be this way at Lincoln Center because they're loaded. (laughs) (laughs) But in my experience, you you rehearse for two weeks and then you go into tech and then you have your first preview. For off-Broadway? Yeah, for a new play. Oh my God. And that is not a lot of time. And you preview for a really long time so that you get sort of your sea legs under you, but... It's that part of it. I think it's good to do it once in a while and like the brain appreciates that challenge. But 
it's hard to make something good in that amount of time, particularly when it's new. And I do think another difference is that I feel that the pressure, because there's just less money involved, that the pressure of doing something off-Broadway is um, is not as significant. Where mm-hmm. on Broadway, I mean, almost immediately people are looking at the grosses every week mm-hmm. and trying to tell, like, how are we selling and are the producers happy and are we going to close or that there's just a whole other sort of financial element that is is not part of the situation off-Broadway, except that you usually share a dressing room with the entire cast. And, uh-huh. You know, you are you have, like, one costume or that things are not necessarily as, as fancy. But I think the work I, – I certainly – I think I tend to see more work off-Broadway um, than I do on Broadway, but – I, there's there's really good stuff being produced in both places. Well, I wanted to ask you, what is your take on the state of Off-Broadway right now? Do you think that it's thriving or do you think that it's struggling? Um, I would say it's thriving. Yeah? I think that there are, I mean, I think there, it has no money. That is honestly the, mm-hmm. <laughs> the thing that I, I makes me the more the most depressed about the state of off-broadway but i think as far as like new writers and new work that's happening i'm we i go to everything at playwrights horizons just because mm-hmm. i've done two shows there and my husband did a show there last year yeah. and i i think they are doing the good work i think rattlestick is doing the good work i think um the public, I mean, the public season this year I know. is so insane. I, I'm. We like, have Lin Manuel Miranda I coming mean, up. You know what? Just you wait until you hear that show. Have you have you heard much of it? I have. We're talking I, about um, Hamilton. Mixed Hamilton, tape. of course. Thank you. And uh, I got to see a workshop of it, and um, I just think, I mean, also, I just really, really care about him as you guys got to work together and merrily roll along at encores and i just think he is everything that it seems like he is yeah yeah Um, i mean everybody just talks about i I call him the man genius because i won't call him the boy genius yeah man i mean (laughs) i just got an email from him today i did the very first interview with him that he ever did back in like 2003, I interviewed him for Gay City News, this little newspaper. Because in the Heights, way back then when it was a workshop, it had a gay Uh storyline that they took out. But I'm very excited to talk to him. Oh, he is. And Fortress of Solitude. I mean, I think I'm more excited for both of those musicals. I don't know anything about that. What is Fortress of Solitude? Oh my gosh. Fortress of Solitude is actually written by Michael Friedman, who wrote Saved. Oh. And is by Itamar Moses, who I think is an incredible... Um, writer of plays and and is, has written a really good uh, book for this musical and is directed by Dan Auken, who I think is like one of the yeah. great directors right now, and Adam Chandler Barat of Peter and the Starcatcher fame and Kyle Beltran are starring in it. And I just we my husband and I went down to Texas because. I, I'm so obsessed with it. They did it in Dallas, and I had some time off, and I was like, let's go see Fortress of Solitude. Oh, my God. That's amazing. So, you yeah. guys see the Kingdom Bolts are to see it. You go you go <laughs> buy your tickets right now. Seriously. It is it is a magical and deeply – I think in that way that musicals, when they're really good, mm-hmm. they're like a play can't do what a musical does, mm-hmm. and it's one of those. Oh, my God. Well, speaking of, can we talk about Spelling Bee? Oh, that about old chestnut. Magic. <laughs> 
<laughs> oh my god. I saw it and I laughed so inappropriately. I was in like one of the front row uh-huh. seats that they stopped the, the teacher stopped the show and stared at me and then that made me laugh harder. Uh-huh. It's the funniest show I've ever seen. Um okay, so spelling bee. This was back in two thousand and five. Yeah. And that was your Broadway debut? Yes. How did that part come to you? That part came to me after I um, after my friend Jess, Jesse Tyler Ferguson had done an initial workshop of it in the Berkshires. And I had done, I did all of these um, like three day projects for the NYU graduate writing program, of which Bill Finn is one of the mm-hmm. advisors. And so I had done this really amazing new piece written by a woman named Jihei Lee. And Bill loved Jihei. And, um, and so he saw me perform, I think, in her like, you know, final musical, her 20-minute musical. And then Jesse was working. I had done a show called Little Fish at Second Stage with Jesse, and he was workshopping Bill's, this new show, and called Spelling Bee. And he called me, and he was like, there's, I think, a really good part for you in this. And um, and it's, I think it's really good, and I think you would have a fun time. And at the time, I thought that I was going to be doing the light in the piazza mm-hmm. on Broadway, and I was I I was I, would, I didn't end up doing that because I was not <laughs> asked to do it. So um, spelling bee sort of ended up being this really amazing little gift that at the time I just thought, you know, I'll go to the Berkshires and workshop this show, and then they were like, yeah, we actually think it might go off Broadway, and I was like, well, that's really nice, that's sort of a surprise, not really, except kind of because it seems so scrappy, and we did it in a cafeteria, but that, and they said that James Lapine was going to come on board, which also was really exciting to me, since I was a huge Sondheim nerd in high school, and he came on board, and then we did it, and it was one of those shows, I was too young to really appreciate it at the time. But that just always worked, I uh-huh. think. And that people loved when we did it in that cafeteria, and then they loved it when we did it at Second Stage, and then they loved it when we moved to Broadway, that just real people would laugh. And I was like, it's not like a fake funny musical. It's an actually funny musical. Yeah. And I think, unfortunately, it's hard to find genuinely funny musicals. Yeah. Ma'am, could you not sit in that seat? I saved a chair for my dad. In the fourth row on the aisle And it may take him a while But when he gets here That's his chair Cause my mother's in an ashram in India I saved a chair for her too But it's merely symbolic As daily she washes herself in the Ganges And I live in a house Where there's an oversized dictionary Jesse Tyler Ferguson and Sarah Salzberg are two of my very best friends in the world now. And that's just because we all, 
were in the Berkshires for a summer and hung out and then had, again, it was like almost a three-year, two and a half years. Um, it was a long process to sort of get us there. But that experience was, I mean, talk about a really amazing Broadway debut just as far as being a part of something that I was really proud yeah. of. And, um, and, and also I felt so lucky because I was... I, my expectations, and I, I, to this day, I mean, I think The Light in the Piazza is like one of the greatest musicals ever written. I didn't know if we were allowed to talk about of this. Of course, <laughs> always, always. Well, I just remember being so happy for you when you got your Tony nomination. I mean, I think everybody, I mean, everybody knew the story, right? I mean, yeah. everyone was so happy for you. That's nice. I mean, I think it was, and the truth is I saw Kelly do it, and there's, I, I'm not just saying this, I could never, ever have done what she did, not even close. And I think... Things are you guys were, friends? We are. We I had love, a really nice time that. this last Tony Award yeah, go around just yeah. being together. And I just think I thought her performance in Bridges was at one of the best I've seen on a Broadway stage. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, you know, as f- there was a time I think when I would have said that I wish that I had never been a part of The Light in the Piazza because it was so painful to go through when I didn't get to do it. But looking back on it now, I think, you know, it was. It was an amazing experience, and it was also, I think, probably a good experience early in my career to find out, like, oh, okay, things don't actually go the way that you think they're going to. Yeah. In a way, that was, like, one of the best things that could have happened to me, because I do think I have really thick skin. Yeah. And I think I was, that that experience sort of helped me understand what I was getting myself into. And at the end of the year, you got nominated for a Tony yeah, anyway. exactly. That turned out really nice. I mean, I could have been sitting at home watching those I Tony know. Awards. So. And in an experience that I ended up having, you know, such an amazing time in. So I think that's like one of those things that when you're in the middle of is so hard to see. I certainly didn't at the time, but that I remember in college, they used to say this quote that was something like the – key to success is the graceful execution of plan B. And I think in this business, it's like, that is so... You knocked it out of the park with your plan B. That was perfectly executed. (laughs) But that's one of those things where you just, so often things are not going to go the way that you expect them to. So you have to figure out, am I going to sit and just be depressed? Which I can absolutely do. And I will allow myself (laughs) for a little bit. And then you got to just figure out like, okay, what am I going to do now? And that's, you know... Sometimes I, easier than other times. Mm-hmm. Well, I just want to, I, I guess I just was wondering about, like, but with you and Kelly, when you both got nominated that year, were you both really happy for each other? Yes. I mean, I think she was one of the first phone calls I got that we both, and then getting to see each other at all of those events. I mean, if the truth be told, that I remember being at the Tony Awards that year and being like, Whew, and I had not seen Piazza yet. I ended up seeing it post Tony's because mm-hmm. I think, you know, I was still, it was still a little, Raw. I was a little tenderoni. <laughs> yeah. um, but, and I remember being there and thinking, and I was sitting, like I was sitting right in front of Adam and Craig and Vicky was across the aisle. And I remember for a moment being like, this is not exactly how I thought this was going to go, where I would be like <laughs> seated with all of my friends from the musical I was fired in. But then also I was like, you know what? I had a, I got to develop two of new musicals that are nominated at the Tony Awards. Yeah. And that is something. That yeah. is, like, actually something to feel pretty proud of. And certainly, Kelly, I mean, she is 
the epitome of grace and and generosity and and I just think like that whole time between with her was could not have been easier and lovelier and and still, like to this day, whenever I see her, I feel like a really deep connection with her. God, that is so. Thank you for sharing that. Of course. Oh, I'm so happy that that story has been told. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying you're telling it for the first time. I'm just so. I'm personally glad to know it. No, I think I. Whenever I do master classes, I almost always start with the being fired from the light in the piazza story because I think it's a. I mean, there was a time when I could not have talked about it the way that I do now, but mm-hmm. I think there's a way that certainly when I, there are people that I idolized or looked at their careers and I was like they've got everything (laughs) that I want people to know like actually it so often does not go the way that you think it's going to and that you know the more prepared you are for that the better off you'll be and I mean that's life's work I'm not saying that I am even good at it yet I'm Working on it. Yeah. You're, you're going to go to another Buddhist That's retreat. right. The Buddhism is helping. I'm dead serious. I believe you. I'm a Buddhist now. And after 45 minutes with you. I wanted to ask one more question about Spelling Bee because I could talk about it all day. But I was thinking you guys always brought on like amazing celebrity guests when they were, they were in the audience. Yes. Do you have any like good stories of that happening? You know, people always say like, was there ever anybody that like you couldn't get out or like did anybody really misbehave? And I feel like the good thing about how that was all set up was that anybody that seemed like they were going to be a problem when they got on stage, once it was time to spell, they were like rushed with anxiety and nerves in a way that it kind of shut it down. Yeah. From them, which I was like, oh, this is good. But there was one show where um, a little boy named Samir Patel who had been the runner-up in the previous year spelling bee oh. came on stage and he was an angel baby and we could not get him out. No! And it was one of those things. He, he spelled Wabayan, right? Which I think <laughs> begins with an E. Which, like, that was the one that nobody ever spelled right. And he was like, oh, yes, Wabayan. And we are like, oh, God. <laughs> Yeeps. And then when we, I mean, they, like, finally just, like, picked up the dictionary and were like, mm. He's like, language of origin, please. Um, But they finally got him out. But the show really suffered. I remember Sarah Salzberg turned to me and she was like, the show hasn't really gone down since Samir got out. And I was like, yeah. They're like, what are all these adults doing up here? Bring back Samir. That That was a really good There was also a show where I think. Deborah Craig, who played Marcy Park, was having – she was sick or she was having a little bit of vocal trouble. And so she needed to leave. And since there was no intermission, she just sort of left in the middle of the show. And David Hasselhoff was in the audience. Oh, my God. And so Jay Reese was like, Hasselhoff, on stage. <laughs> Hasselhoff, David Hasselhoff, like, stood up there and spelled and, like, told stories for, like, ten minutes while they put Lisa Ewan in her costume. And he was a champ. Like, oh, my God. Hilarious. You can always count on Hasselhoff, oh, I feel that like. Guy. Whenever you see that guy, you Absolutely. know it's going to be a fun day. Yeah. We were like, do you want to sing anything from Jekyll and Hyde? And I forgot that he's totally Broadway alumni. Yeah. He made it sure to remind us of that when yeah. he came backstage. <laughs> I, uh, we sometimes ask people about like their favorite theater, like their most memorable theater-going moments. And I, I, I'm not going to cry, but I could summon tears right now thinking about the final moments of Spelling Bee where you look at him and you go... It's okay. I no. I could literally. Since I became a father, I have been ruined. I cry and anything, but I. That is one of the, my most special theater moments. Oh. I always come back to that when I need a good cry. You. It's all right, Barf. 
U N G Felthenschau. We have a winner! Champion! Just sensational champion! Representational champion! I love that show so much too because I think it did that amazing thing, which was that it never manipulated you, it made you laugh so hard. Yes. And then when it needed to sort of give an emotional experience it totally delivered yeah and that's totally. a well-written i mean that's hard to do absolutely um i love the story that one of you guys could leave in the middle of the show if you <laughs> needed to <laughs> that was not um encouraged <laughs> um we have this new thing that we're doing called lightning round oh great do you I mind love a lightning round. oh i love that you love a lightning round lightning round with celia keenan bulger dream come true <laughs> okay ready Scrabble or Monopoly? Scrabble. Opera or ballet? Ballet. Paris or London? Oh, London. Cherry Pie or Cherry Jones? Cherry Jones. Indiana Jones or Cherry Jones? Cherry Jones. Facebook or Twitter? Twitter. Andrew or Maggie? You have to pick one. No. (laughs) (laughs) Plays or musicals? Oh, gosh. Lightning round. Musicals. SVU or Criminal Intent? SVU. Favorite date spot for you and your husband? ABC Kitchen. Oh, I love it. Met or MoMA? Uh, MoMA. Best celebrity guest pulled on stage for Spelling Bee? David Hasselhoff. Uh, favorite book? Uh, ooh, I just finished um, The Art of Fielding, which is not my favorite book, but I really highly recommend it. Name three special skills from your resume. Um, driver's license. Speaks a little bit of Spanish. And took dance 27 years ago. <laughs> You're Celia Kinnabold. You can get away, we can get away with that. Uh, can you rhyme a word with menagerie? Um... Nope. <laughs> Ask Lynn Manuel. Yeah, exactly. Uh, okay, once and for all, is it Quinto or Quinto? Quinto. Keenan Thompson or Ray Bolger? Ray Bolger. Your favorite Broadway theater? The Booth. Correctly spell elanguescence. E L A N G U E S C E N C E. That was some real muscle memory that just kicked in there. <laughs> Celia Keenan Bolger, I am so grateful that you came and oh did our gosh, podcast. Oh my gosh, this was so much fun. Thank, Thank you, you guys for, for having here. me. Oh yes, my, my pleasure. I love Celia Keenan Bolger. Hey, my friend Matt, who writes for Broadway World, loves you. Will you say hi to Matt Tamanini? Hi, Matt Tamanini. <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank you. We did it. Today's episode was produced by Mike Jensen, Vanya Arslanian, and me, Patrick Hines. Special thanks, as always, to BroadwaySpotted.com, Davenport Theatrical, Bradley Behan, Steve Tipton, the staff at Oswald, and Ellen Marie Marsh. If you're looking for even more theater people, check out our website, where you'll find all of our episodes, including recent conversations with Lin-Manuel Miranda, Laura Osnes, Anthony Rapp, Karen Olivo, Eden Espinosa, Andrew Keenan-Bolger, Leslie Margarita, and more. We're at www.theaterpeople.com. That's theater with an E-R-P-P-L dot com. We'll be back in two weeks. Until then, tell your friends about us. Let's get the theater community talking. <laughs>